We appreciate it. It's uh, great to be with God's people and to look out and see, uh, see people that some I know really well and some maybe I've never got a chance to meet before. But regardless of your first time or you've been here a whole bunch of times, I'm glad you're here. And I know that you're here for a reason. And you probably don't even know what that reason is. That's the way the Lord works. God does work in our life. And um, a lot of times we don't see it unless we're looking back. And so wherever you're at in your life today, whatever God has brought into your life this week or this month or this year or whatever it might be, listen, today you're here. And I believe God wants to encourage your heart. I believe God wants to speak to your soul truth that you need to hear. And I trust that his spirit will speak to us in that way. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask him to do just that. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the fact that we can know you through Jesus, Lord, and his death, resurrection, bringing us life. And Lord, that those who are in you, your spirit resides within us, Lord. We aren't, you aren't far away. You're right here. Now, Lord, as we open up your word, the word you inspired, Lord, you breathed out. I pray, Father, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. I encourage you to bring the Bible with you. It certainly helps. I know you probably have it on your device or whatever, but open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we've come to chapter 4 now as we enter the summer of 2017. 32 verses in Ephesians 4, and what we're going to do over these next two and a half months, we're going to spend all of the summer in Ephesians 4. So this is going to be the Ephesians 4 summer for us. And as you read through what God has communicated to us in Ephesians 4, at times it can be a little overwhelming. Be a little overwhelming to hear what God calls us to. And so we spent time over the last two weeks really warning us about potential obstacles. The fact that if you walk into Ephesians 4 and try in the strength of your own flesh to live out what God calls us to do, you will do nothing but fail. You have absolute failure. Oh, now some may have more sort of strength of character and they might be able to to put it on a little better than others. But the truth is we cannot walk what God calls us to walk on our own. You cannot do it. And so we we were warned last week about dead men walking. Don't go into Ephesians 4 trying to walk as a dead man. Dead men can't walk. They can't respond. Be careful there. But we said there's another error we, can watch, we, we need to watch out for, and that is new men, selfing. Even as a new creature in Christ, we can try to operate in our own strength and, and live out what we're called to here in our own strength. And you then again will fail. Let's read Ephesians 4, 1 and following, and just be challenged by the word of God. Paul writes, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4. There is one body 
and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into lower regions, the lower regions that is the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I really want to start with a question today. I want to start with a question. And the question is, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? I mean, we're told here in the first verse to walk as Jesus walked, to walk in a way that is worthy of him. 1 John 2, 6 says that we're to walk as Jesus walked. And we know that walk is really referring to our, our everyday life. So we're to walk in a way that reflects Christ working in us. Now, that's a high calling. And then it goes into this unity, and we, we've, we've talked about this already, this idea of humility and gentleness and patience, and now it just gets, I mean, the Word of God gets really in our life now at this point. It's talking about our relationships with other people, that we don't respond with pride and shortness, but we're gentle, meek, patient, bearing with one another. These are high callings. To walk in a manner worthy, that our relationships be really described as unified and gentle and meek? I mean, what hope do we have? Listen, you have great hope. You have the hope of the triune God. We are going to see today that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in our corner, as you will, actually in our body, residing in us that we might live this out. You know, we can understand a need for help. And just as an illustration, I want to think back on my, I think it was sixth grade years. Okay, remember sixth grade? You know, people haven't changed much. Sixth grade for me was probably a lot like sixth grade for you. Okay? I mean, they call it bullying now. We call it just regular sixth grade existence, right? It's just the way that life just functioned. You know, it's just, it's just how it worked. You know the bully, and I had a bully in my class. His name was, we'll just say Andrew, okay, in case he's listening and around the corner, okay? You know, your standard everyday bullying, the flicking of the ear, the pulling out of the chair, the tripping in the hallway, all that kind of stuff. Recipient right here. It was rough. I mean, it was like when I, the first day of sixth grade, it started. And he just, he just, I, he just picked me, decided that I was going to be sort of his little, you know, target, and he would come after me. You know, it's like he owned sixth grade, you know? I think it helped the fact that it was about his third time through, okay? So, you know, in some ways he did kind of own it. And this just went on for a great deal of time. You know, it grew really discouraging until one day it happened. It's like the dream of every sixth grade kid. I went to this sort of family gathering. It was, it, was the, it, was a, 
it was really a ceremony celebrating a wedding in my family. And because of this wedding, I now inherited the one thing that I needed most. The biggest kid in all of sixth grade, because of that wedding, was now my cousin. That's right. The big, tall kid in sixth grade who had a beard, like six foot five, you know, this huge kid, was now my cousin. And I walked right into sixth grade and let everybody know he's my cousin. And little Andy shrunk down to the size that he decided really needed, he needed to be. You know, something about having a big man in our corner. We all can understand that position. When, when before you is an endeavor that you cannot in your own strength conquer. Before you is a challenge that you can never meet. And I'm not talking about little piddly things like our job or a sporting event or a test that you have on Friday. I'm talking about the real things, the inner man things, my life with God, my life in really submission and obedience to the Spirit of God, my life played out in the relationships that I have. I've got this big bully chasing me around all the time. This bully of my own flesh that does not want to respond to God. This bully of the world all around me that's trying to conform me to its image. And yes, even the bully of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, who designs this whole system that it might flow against God. Listen, I stand in one corner. On the other side of the corner is the power of the flesh, the world, and Satan. And on my own, I fail. And Paul has brought us here in verses 1, 2, and 3. He has brought us to the need to walk worthy. He has brought us to the need to live with humility. And look where he goes in verse number 4. And let me read it again and see where the Spirit of God moves Paul to really cast our vision. There is one body and one spirit, just as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is four, five, and six communicating to us. Folks, it is communicating to us that with us we have the triune God. I want to take a minute and talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? I want to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it's a very difficult, really, doctrine to explain. It's a challenge to explain the Trinity. And there are many reasons for that. And there are, there are efforts that we make to try to express this idea That God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all God. Yet they are not one and the same. They're not not just the different roles of each other. The Spirit is separate from the Son. The Son is separate from the Father. And the Father is separate from the Spirit. But yet they are all one. And the challenge of explaining this is we cannot find this any other place in existence. 
Oh, people try, you know, you hear the, the three-leaf clover and the egg and the different phases of the water, but in reality, they all fall short. They all fall short of what it means that God is three in one, a trinity, a triunity. And what I want us to see today as we, as we take just a quick glimpse at this doctrine of the trinity, I want us to see that God is not only above us, but God is in us working. And this is a result of his very nature as the triune God. Now, there's not a particular verse I can go to and I can say, see, it says here, God is three in one. Although I will tell you that many people turn to Ephesians chapter four, four to six, and say, here we have a place where the Trinity is at, at, you can see it there in full view. We have the Son, we have the Spirit, we have the Father. What I want to take just a moment to do is to kind of walk through the progress of Revelation, and I want to show you, really in a systematic way, where the Trinity comes from. What, what the triunity of God is, and why it is that we come to this position of the Trinity. So I want to show you just a quick sort of graphic that, that displays this progress of revolution. You go back, Revelation, go back to the Old Testament. Go back to your Old Testament. I've got some verses there in your worship notes. And you can see that even all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, back to Genesis chapter 1, when God is revealing how he created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God now speaking. I ask you, who is he speaking to? Who is God speaking to? When he says, let us make man in our image. Throughout this passage, we have plural pronouns depicting or referring to the very person of God. There are those, maybe skeptics, who would say, well, this is just trying to express his majesty. And so the only way we can express how great he is is to use a plural pronoun. But in reality, as I understand, there is no other example where that is ever done. Where in majesty, someone is expressed with plural pronouns. What is God saying here? God is revealing something about his character. He's revealing something about his very nature. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Then we we flash forward to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. The great Shema, the Lord our God is one. He is one. The Jewish people were adamantly monotheistic. Surrounded by a polytheistic world, they were adamantly monotheistic. They knew there was one God and only one. Surrounded by a plurality of gods, they knew there was one, the creator of all. Flash forward to the life of Jesus. To the life of Jesus. You can see now that Jesus is revealing this truth about the nature of God. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 28, Matthew 3, we have the baptism of Jesus, where we have the Son there in the water, the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove, and the voice of God the Father speaking at the baptism of Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 28, at the Great Commission, when Jesus now, speaking to his disciples, says, go into all the world and make make disciples... Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. There we have it. That this great God of the universe, the one that, that spoke and we existed, the one who sustains all that there is, the one who's finishing out his plan that will come to completion, is three in one. Not three roles, like I'm a father, I'm a son, and, and I'm a pastor. Not three different roles. This isn't what the Trinity is. It isn't that God the Father fills the role of Father, fills the role of Son, and fills the role of Spirit. No. He is three in one. Distinct, yet all God. Now we should be intellectually bothered by this. You should be intellectually challenged. Let your six-year-old daughter come up to you there at the dining room table and say, Daddy, how can God be three and one at the same time? And then have your wife grab your phone and videotape you trying to answer that. Uh, well, you know, he's three. And it's like an egg, kind of. It's like the faces of the water. It's, it's, we, we cannot comprehend this. And make no mistake, these fishermen who wrote the Gospels and the Pharisee Paul, they understood that three doesn't equal one and one doesn't equal three. It's not like Peter the fisherman thought that three fish was the same as one fish. They understand the intellectual difficulty of this, they understand, yes, the majesty of this trait or characteristic of God. But they didn't apologize for it. And neither did God. And neither shall I. He has said, he is Father, Son, Spirit. And just to, just to continue, here's the definition. This is how a theologian would, de, would define it, okay? Putting this up on the screen for me, please, because i got to read it. I don't have it by memory. There we go. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person fully God, and there is one God. Now, where Paul goes in our passage here is he goes from walking worthy to unity, to the very trinity that God is. Ask you a question, I already referred to it once. Who was God speaking to in Genesis chapter 1? Did God need to make man to have relationship? Or did he have relationship prior to man's even existence? God needs no one. God needs no one. But this relational being, God, three in one, the one who made us all, eternally existing in relationship inside of the Trinity, invites you and me into that relationship. He invites us into his home, as you may. He invites you to enter in with him, to have relationship with him for all of eternity. Now, I'm really, I'm just, I'm blown away by the very nature of God. We, we continue into the progress of Revelation. I gave you the verses. You can look at them. But then we, we move to this further, really, expression of the very character of God. 
That God in his Trinitarian nature, in his triunity, is at the same time both transcendent and imminent. Now, I know those are words that you never use. I understand that. Let me try to explain them to you, okay? Because they're important for us today as we wrestle through what Paul is saying and why. First of all, transcendent. Transcendent means to rise above, to be beyond, to be beyond the existence of really time in itself. A transcendent cause is one that you are willing to maybe give your life for because it is so important, right? God is transcendent beyond his creation, before his creation, ruling over his creation, sovereign over every detail of our lives. Transcendent. And so you've heard me express it this way before. In the the stretching out of your arms, it says God is transcendent. Do that with me. Ready? He's transcendent. Go ahead. I know it's awkward. Go ahead. It wakes you up anyway. He's transcendent. Ah, good, good. You didn't do it. I'll let you. There you go. Okay. And at the same time, he's imminent. He's close. Imminent means involved. It means there. It means with us. It means he's here in our presence. Go with me in scripture. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 4. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40. Go to the middle of your Bible. Turn right a little bit. Find Isaiah 40. Listen, I'll challenge you. If you are looking for something to read in your quiet time this week, you say, I don't know what to read, Pastor Lowe. I don't know what to read. Read Isaiah 40. Spend some time in Isaiah 40. I have a Bible and it's like at home. And if you drop it on the ground, it opens up automatically to Isaiah 40. I just go here so often. I love this passage. Let me start reading at verse number 12. I'm sorry, verse number 11. Speaking of God, it says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? See the imminence and the transcendence. He is close, verse 11, tending his flock like a shepherd, holding us in his arms. He is close. And at the same time, he is far above. Hollows of the hand, all of the water here, spanning the earth. He is transcendent and he is imminent. Now, that's just a snapshot at who God is. Let's go back now to Ephesians 4 and see why is Paul going here? Why did Paul run now? To the very nature of God. Why did God run to the character of God? Why did Paul now land at who God is and what he is like? Because folks, on our own, we have no hope. You and I have no hope. We need the transcendent, imminent one to work in our lives. Let's see it. Verse number four. Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called 
to the one hope that belongs to your call. I believe verse number four is Paul here is driving hard to the basket to remind us of the very spirit of God. That God is in us. He says, there is one body and one spirit. How is it that we become part of this one body? Are you part of the body? Is your sitting here today make you part of the body of Centerpoint Bible Church? Absolutely not. It's clear from scripture that you become part of the body of Christ when the spirit of God comes and dwells in you. This is what makes a person the body of God. Listen to Ephesians 2.22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the spirit of God. I mean, what is a body? Think about that question for a minute. What is a body? You have a body, right? You see it all the time. It's getting older. You know the one I'm talking about, right? You have a body. What is the body? The body is simply a physical tool to allow the spirit to operate in this environment. That's what the body is. It's, it's a place for the spirit to have expression in this environment. You and I are the body of the spirit of Christ. We are the place where the spirit of God operates in this environment. We are where God works. We are the tool God uses. You, if you are the body of Christ, if the spirit of God dwells in you, you are the body. There is one body and there is one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is no hope outside of this one spirit. So here's where the spirit of God is taking us. Walk in a manner worthy. Be humble. Be gentle. Be meek. Be patient. We hold up our hands and say, what hope do I have? I can't do this. I've tried to be gentle. I've tried to be meek. I've tried to control my temper. I've tried to control my tongue. I've tried to control myself. I can't do it. Romans 7, the author there says, who will save me from the wretched man that I am? The answer, folks, is the one spirit. Imagine, if you will, let yourself go to what God is promising If you are in Christ, you are the temple of the Spirit of God. He has come and indwelled you. In your corner, in your corner, the triune God. Next, it goes to the Son. It says, one Lord. There's only one Lord. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that this name is given to Jesus, Lord. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. We're now seeing the Son here. We have the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit of God in us. Now we have the Son of God rescuing us. He's rescuing us. That's the only, He is the only Lord that there is. He is the only, and really, 
Found in him is the one faith. Now, this is not a this is not your faith that you get saved through, I don't believe. This is the teaching, the, the understanding we have of the very character of God. It is the body of understanding that we know about the Lord. The faith handed down to us that we are to contend for. And then it says, one baptism. And I want to take a minute and talk about that. Because there are those that maybe even take this verse and say, well, in order for me to be saved, I have to be baptized. And I know some of you are looking forward to being baptized this summer. We want to have an opportunity for you to do that. What is this one baptism and and why is the Spirit of God bringing this up here, especially in verse number five that, that is really driving us to look to the Son of God, Jesus? We need to remember what a baptism is. Baptism isn't so much you're being lowered into water and lifted out, although that's important and that's how we do it at Centerpoint Bible Church. Baptism is about identification. It's about you aligning yourself with this son. When I was baptized, I was actually, I was originally baptized as an infant. I don't remember, okay? I was there, but I don't recall it. And it meant nothing, nothing to me. It probably meant a lot to my parents. They were unsaved at the time, and they just were doing what they thought they were supposed to do. So they had me baptized at the little local denominational church that they attended, About 15 years later, I got saved. It was odd. Nobody sat me down and said, you should be baptized. Nobody did that. Nobody explained it to me. But I came home saying to my parents, I want to be baptized. Now, they didn't know what to do with this. They were were unsaved. They were scratching their head. What are we supposed to do? So they lined up a meeting with me and the minister, as we called him. And I sat down in his office a little nervous, skinny, pimply-faced 15-year-old kid told him that I'd gotten saved and that I wanted to be baptized. He said, oh, Mickey, Mickey, Mickey. That's what they called me then. You don't need to be baptized. You weren't saved yesterday or that weekend, whatever it was. You've, you've always been saved. You were born into a Christian family. So you've always been saved saved. Now, I didn't know too much at that point, but I knew he was wrong. I knew he was wrong. And I wanted to be baptized. And I pressed the point the best that I could. And so a couple weeks later, we went to the little Perky's Health Spa in Kaiser, West Virginia at the pool, and he baptized me. And honestly, it didn't really, I didn't know what it meant. I, I knew I wanted to do this, but I didn't know what it meant. Flash forward seven years. I now come under the teaching of God's word. And I understand what baptism means. What it meant. What it communicates. It communicates that I am aligning myself with the work of Christ. I am identifying myself. I am saying, Jesus is my Lord. He is my Lord. I don't trust anything else. I trust him. I put my faith in him. So at 23 years old, I got baptized for the third time. But now I knew what it meant. It meant I was identifying with Jesus. 
Folks, that is the only hope we have. The only hope we have is not in baptism, but it's in what baptism represents. It's that I have identified with the one who rescued me, who went to a cross and rescued me, a bloody, dangerous death where he died on the cross in my place and I identify with what he did. You see, the triune God is saving me. The triune God, now spirit, is coming and dwelling me. And that is my hope. That is my calling. He makes me part of his body. The triune God, the Son, is going to the cross and rescuing me. And I'm identifying with who he is and what he has done. And I'm saying, hey, I follow Jesus. I have put my trust in Christ. That one Lord, that one faith, that one identification. I don't identify with anybody else. Careful who you identify with. Do not identify with me, for heaven's sake. Don't identify with your favorite radio preacher or somebody on television or a book author that you like. Identify with Jesus. That's where our identity is. And that's what we're being called to here. Walk in a manner worthy Of Christ, the one I have identified with. The one who said, it is to your advantage that I go away, that my spirit might come, the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the indweller. So then we go on to the last member of the deity here, the triune God, verse number six. We had one spirit, verse 4, one son, Jesus, verse 5, and now we go to the one God. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One God. One majestic ruler of all the earth. Every other God is a peon, nothing more than a demon-powered sort of symbol of dark forces. But we have this one God who has now invited us into special relationship where we are his child and he, our father. And look at what this father has. Power over all, power through all, and in all. This great, powerful God indwelling you. Therefore, verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I hesitate to think, going all the way back to my silly illustration of the bully, but place that into the real world of your spiritual life. You know, I've been in conversations with men and women who are just turned over by sin. It's like a giant tidal wave has come and just crashed and rolled them over. And they sit there in in desperation. And I know what they're saying. I, I can read between the lines what they're saying. They're saying, Pastor Lowell, help me. Help me, 
Help me conquer this. Help me conquer my tongue. Help me conquer my will. Help me conquer my eyes. Help me conquer my lust. Help me conquer. And I tell you, on my own and on your own, I can give you no hope. No hope. But we look to the triune God in all of his majesty. Really, let's use our word. In all of his transcendency, far above us. But now watch the wonder of verse 7. Verse 7. You with me? Because there's a change now that occurs. And it's exciting. We've seen this picture now in 4, 5, and 6 of this majestic God ruling over all. Indwelling us and rescuing us. Ruling over all. But look at verse number seven. But. There's this this startling contrast. This, This thing comes out of nowhere. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This great transcendent one, this great powerful one, there's this contrast that comes in and he steps into our life. But Grace comes. Grace comes. This is like you having a basketball team playing a three-on-three tournament, and you know you don't have any chance of winning, and you get a phone call. It's Stephen Curry. Hey, man, I'd like to come play on your team. You're like, what? Yeah, and I'm bringing LeBron with me as well. What do you mean? What do you mean? I don't deserve this. I don't deserve the all-powerful God now, not basketball player, coming into our lives. But grace was given. Given. And who was it given to? It says, when he ascended, verse number 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, I want to be honest with you. This verse has always confused me. Verse number eight has always confused me. What, what are you driving at here, Paul? You know, Spirit of God, what are you trying to say to us? When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, certainly this is a quote from Psalm. It's being attached to Jesus. It's being attributed to Jesus, that Jesus ascended on high. Verse number nine, he's coming into the earth. He's descending onto the earth. This is the incarnation. And at the end of his, end of his earthly ministry, he ascended to me with the Father. Okay, I get that. But why now? Why now, God? Why are you bringing this in now? And let me tell you, this word captives will unleash this for you. The word captive, now listen to this. The the word captive means no less than a prisoner of war. It means a prisoner of war. It means to be taken captive and being a prisoner. Look back at verse number one. What has Paul called himself? He's called himself a prisoner for the Lord. And then he says in verse number 8 that Jesus now is leading a whole host of prisoners of his. Folks, when you came to Jesus, when you identified with him, 
You became his. He entered into you. And you became his. Part of the chosen nature of who we are in Christ is we are brought into his now. I'm no longer my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm not the owner of me. I can, I can let my rights go, as we said last week, and live in humility and live in gentleness and live in patience because I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I am now a prisoner of the almighty God. I'm a child of his. I am now captivated by him and he leads me. So I look out here and what I see now, I trust, is a whole bunch of prisoners of Jesus. We are his captives. He is our ruler, our Lord, our master. I am not mine. You are not yours. I identify with him. His spirit resides in all of us. And he rules over every single thing that there is. What hope do we have? Romans 8 said it this way. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can stand against us? In our corner, if you want to say it that way, is the triune God, the Spirit residing in you, the Son rescuing you, the Father ruling over all. And He invites us all now. He invites you all, every single one of us, into the joy of His captivity into the joy of his ownership, into the joy of his lordship. Will you follow him in that way? You know, it, it makes verses one to three make all the more sense. I walk worthy because the spirit is in me. We're unified together because the spirit is in us. He rescued us. He rules over us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this truth of your word. Lord, it's good to wrestle with who you are and to know that your spirit resides in us. Lord, that your son rescued us from the domain of darkness and that God the Father rules over all. Lord, I do pray that you would unify us in this one spirit. That we would be the one body of Christ. That we would look unto you, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And we would identify there and nowhere else. Father, do this work in our lives. May we walk in a manner worthy. We may, we, may we be unified in you and through this point people to you and to your word. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.